This is Daniel Figelli. You're listening to the AI and Business Podcast. Today, our focus is on improving quality for manufacturing applications with artificial intelligence. If we are making things, we need to make sure that we're making things we can actually sell, and we need to make sure we're making as many of them as we can. And there are some workflows and processes for which AI is a great fit for doing exactly that. Our guest this week is Remy Duquette. He is the Vice President of Innovation and Industrial AI at Maya HTT. Maya HTT is a services firm focused on industrial engineering and industrial data and AI. Remy received his master's in aerospace engineering from the University of Toronto and has been with Maya HTT for some 20 years since. And in this episode, he speaks to his direct knowledge with applying AI in the industrial setting, with examples from making paper products all the way to food processing. So there's a lot of variety in our use cases that we touch on today, as well as some critical points about what it looks like to apply AI for quality improvement, including how the heck we measure quality in the first place. From the sensors we use to the way we train our algorithms to the way we present those solutions to folks who are on the factory floor who need to manage this equipment, Remy touches on the full gambit of what AI transformation might look like, and again, with a specific focus on use cases with quality as their goal. I certainly enjoyed the tangible examples that Remy went into, and I think you will as well. So without further ado, let's fly into this episode. This is Remy Duquette with Maya HTT here on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Remy, I'm glad to be able to have you back on the show. It's been four or five years now that I think about it. And today we're talking about the topic of optimizing quality in manufacturing. Manufacturing is certainly a different world than it was 10 years ago. There's a lot more data. There's a a different kind of uh, environment that we're operating in with telemetry and, and the new technologies that are available to us. Can you set the stage as to this, basically... The, the ecosystem we're operating in as a, as a manufacturing leader with our data today. Uh, sure, Dan. And uh, yeah, thank, thank you for having me on the show. And, you know, it's 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 fun place to be in, in industry right now in manufacturing because you're right. Uh, what most people might not realize is, you know, the manufacturing world has collected an enormous amount of, of data over the years. And in the end, what people uh, have slowly built is this data richness that they couldn't you know possibly imagine would be leveraged today by you know ai models and, and algorithms in all sorts of ways but to study the, the data you know uh, in terms of telemetry and and time series data what we're really talking about here is in the physical world of manufacturing right process type data and quantities such as temperature pressures uh, contact events like opening and closing gates of of machines and forces conveyor speed you know very practical uh, industrial data types extends of course the electrical power current voltage vibration levels and even now we can use video as as a sensor or audio as a sensor but o- overall i mean there's a very eclectic uh, mix of different types of data uh, that are collected and that data can come from multiple different types of systems, right? Whether it's sensors or uh, different programmable logic controllers, PLCs, or, or MOMS device, so manufacturing operations management solutions that have been put in place over the years, or even ERP, right? Where in, you know, on the enterprise level, they might have some business planning and, and software that, that they've put in the mix. And, and this kind of makes it 
quite tricky for many people to leverage that data because when you think about it, sensor data, we call it like we refer it often as the pyramid of, of time scales because uh, because it's hmm. quite quite eclectic in nature. You have sensor data at micro millisecond probing frequencies where you get updates on a very fast and regular basis. And other times with PLCs, you might get at a second level type of frequency and then you know every hour for manufacturing systems. So it gets really complicated yeah. real fast. <laughs> to try to line up those streams, right? Where it's like, okay, what happened at the same time? Well, you have to slow this one down by a thousand X and you have to speed this one up by, yeah. So being able to line up that pyramid sounds like an awfully big challenge. And tell me if I'm right or wrong, Remy, but one of the reasons I feel like it's challenging is because these systems weren't necessarily built to work together. We were streaming this data off of this thing for some arbitrary reason. And now we're mm -hmm. saying, oh, can we combine it and use it together for predictive capabilities? It's like, well, that sensor was built to do its own little thing to do one little job. And now we're trying to feed a much more complicated holistic system with it. That does feel like a really challenging circumstance to find yourself in. Well, right, right on. Yeah, those, those sensors and PLC controllers and control loops in general, or, or you know, SCADA systems in general in the manufacturing world have been put in place. Mostly, I mean, it's been decades that manufacturers are using data, right? So it's it's not new to leverage the, the sensor type of data for controls. But it was always with a very narrow, specific use case of a, you know one or a couple, if you're lucky, of inputs to output mapping, you know, with simple thresholds and assumptions to leverage that telemetry data, typically to issue uh, an alarm or a warning system or a notification to a technician that something is starting to look a little bit wrong, and you know, have these people. Uh, take actions to to control the system in a better way, but uh, you know, very very manually prone, and and certainly the the sensor types and the data acquisition uh, has evolved significantly to where where we are today, and it's evolved you know mostly from a data acquisition for these holistic systems over the last decade, really, where you know AI machine learning has started to turn its head and say, hey. We can now leverage that data, and you should actually leverage that data. Otherwise, you're going to be left behind. And we'll focus later on, you know, the manufacturing quality as as a specific use case to get started uh, and to generate value for your company, and also get people kind of uh, to better understand what what AI means for them, and that it's actually going to augment. Uh, the shop floor workers and not completely replace them. Yeah, right? yeah. There's a lot of <laughs> yeah jazz floating around right these days. The, yeah, that's, there's oodles of challenges. I mean, we, we we hear it all the time around the augmentation versus automation thing. Obviously, vendors have to beat the drum of augmentation so that they don't show up and be scary. In reality, if we imagine the world, you know, 20 years from now, there will be some jobs I'm sure that won't be around. There'll be others that'll be new. But uh, yeah, right. cultural yeah. elements to adoption. There's a lot, a lot of hurdles there. One thing I want to touch on before we dive into use cases, because obviously, uh, you know, as a, as a listener yourself, and we're grateful to have you as one, Remy, uh, use cases are a big, big part of what we do on the AI and Business Podcast, making the topics and, and the capabilities we talk about really concrete. But I think that the, the world we're operating in with data and manufacturing, I happen to just from all our interviews know is really has its own challenges. And you actually used a term before we started recording, which is uh, that data should be dirty until proven clean. Uh, and that it's, there's a lot of scrutiny that needs to go into analyzing these data sources. What is that philosophy? Because I feel like that's a potentially a really good tool for leaders to think through so that they don't assume that they've got uh, an ecosystem that's automatically going to work for them. How would you advocate that people think about their data in that respect? 
Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. And that's a funny term, but we always use it when we start any project or alignment or exploration with, with a client saying, look, uh, first, assume your data is dirty until proven clean. And when I say proven clean is we're going to put the data pipelines to make it reliably proven clean, not just like a one-off that, you know, your data scientists will clean it up and you're not going to know the 122 different things that they've operated on the data. And, and that will trip you because once you get in operations, oh, well, guess what? All these 120 steps are no longer there between yeah. the raw data and, you know, what happens in, in a manufacturing plan and in the shop floor, right? I mean, the, the sensors get clogged, the, the dust settles on That's key components, the lighting changes. I mean, there's tons of stuff that are happening in, in a daily operations 24-7. Often these, these people run. It's really complicated. You know, maintenance happens and there's no record of that maintenance in your telemetry data, but your telemetry data will change. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the AI doesn't know that you've just, you know, moved the sensor three inches to the left or, you know, uh, but those things happen day in, day out because it's an industrial environment and things need to move. It, it needs to get going, right? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, people don't, uh, I think in, you know, the Facebooks and the Googles of the world, and we've had all, you know, the, the big boys on the on the show, the advantage that they have of living in a digital ecosystem where everything is being digitally tracked is just impossible to estimate how adv advantageous that is. I mean, getting data yeah. from the physical world is insanely challenging. And to your point, uh, it sounds like what you're advocating for is that uh, leadership doesn't say, okay, the little sandbox data set that my data scientists are giving me, they shouldn't say, oh yeah, that's exactly what the rest of my production data looks like. They should investigate, 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 and make sure that the data at the source is actually going to work for the application. Yes. Um, okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah, and, and and you trim, you know, you trim the inputs to to the AI model, right? So uh, you you safeguard the AI model to run only when you're guaranteed with clean inputs. That that's really one of the big lessons learned over the years is even if it reduces overall the performance of the AI, it's you're still gaining, right? So it, instead of gaining, you know, twenty five percent productivity improvement, if you get twenty two percent because you safeguard the AI to be actually reliable for those twenty two percent, well, guess what? That's that's the big value, right? Then people start trusting the system; they now understand the system better and and work with it and make it even better over time, right? These things that get clipped and where the AI model is not running full, you know, at full speed, then you get a, a warning or notification to go and investigate why was that? And then you continuously improve, right? It's like in the IT world, but it's with operational technologies and, and people in, in the loop. Yep. So, okay. So it's, I think it's important to set the table here of the world that we're entering and the fact that as a leader, uh, especially if we're not the technical person handling this data, be skeptical, know that you're up against some challenges but also uh, be ready to take the right kind of actions to see that continuous improvement. Let's get right into some actual concrete use cases of this. You folks are working on a number of different deployments where AI is being used to focus on improving manufacturing quality. So let's dive into one of these and, and get a sense of where in the real world improving quality can actually come about through AI. Go ahead and lay it on us. Sure. I mean, uh, I'll, I'll mention a couple of very specific use cases, one or two in continuous, what we call continuous manufacturing, where you get some raw 
something of some sort, and I'll talk about uh, pulp and paper and potatoes as the raw stuff. <laughs> and then that gets transformed through a systematic, you know, chain of things, but it's continuous, right, until you get the end product. For fries, my friend fries, it's in a bag and, and in a frozen container at the end of, of the food chain. For pulp and paper, is those gigantic rolls of paper or the you know little mask that we have or other things that are being produced. So, you know, as a specific example here of how AI and machine learning can help here and, and bring some value to the enterprise on the manufacturing floor, if you look at the quality of production of, of pulp and paper in, in general, one of the key things is over the years, uh, there's been a few very select experts that are on the shop floor that fully understand the black magic that's actually happening on, on the shop floor, right? And they, whenever some things goes awry, they, they move the dial up and down a little bit to, to maintain the continuous quality of the, of the product itself. And when they get new products, that's where the challenge often goes. And, you know, if you, if you run these paper mills, uh, you know, production chain for a couple, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes, and, and you, you haven't noticed that the paper that's going to be ending up producing bad quality has been flowing for 15, 20, 30 minutes, these are huge raw material waste, right? Whether it's the pulp and paper, the resin, the the machine, the power the, to run all this stuff, right? And the, not and and the people around, like you know, their salaries and you know, big all time, of that big is time. costing big time, and it's actually reducing the amount. The the big value really here is it's actually reducing the amount of paper produced, which is which is productivity of what you can sell, and so to augment. The, um, the value of your chain in terms of production. We can look in this case, uh, you know, we did a, a, a very nice project with uh, Gladfelter. We recently uh, publicly pre presented with them and it was a great project where we took about you know, 600 uh, real-time data monitoring time series data points across their entire uh, chain of production and, and really looked at real-time prediction of what the end quality would be so when you start putting the the pulp in in the in the machines and you feed it all through these different processes each of the the steps in the production was, was you know properly followed through and about 20 different quality parameters are let's say measured in systematic batches at the end of, of the food chain and and we were able to have them understand the variance in, in that production and, and what impacted the quality up or down in each of these different parameters. And by playing, right, if something was too hot on the first five minutes, and we could then adjust the conveyor speed perhaps, right, or send notification to the technicians in the shop floor to say, now it would be a good time to increase the speed in the oven because the thing was a bit more dry than usual when it got to us, right? So those are the kinds of different systematic notifications that the system can now recommend to the people and augment them and actually turning up and down different knobs along the food chain and get the and avoid uh, any you know startup uh, esoteric uh, uh, issues that they have never seen before because it's never been minus 30 out there uh, you know on a winter day or you know, and ninety percent humidity all of a sudden in in the shop floor for whatever reason in the summer. So so all these uh, different events, whether they're driven by things that are predictable or unpredictable, 
can be corrected through these machine learning components. So that was, you know, on the paper, you know, production side. I have a kind of an interesting thing on 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 potatoes and French fries. Um, how, then, uh, you know, if you were to venture a guess, how do you think uh, potatoes are being peeled in the process to generate those beautiful French fries? Millions and millions of tiny knives. I, don't, I have no. I have no idea. I have no. I have no <laughs> idea whatsoever. I'm imagining a a giant pipe full of little razor blades on the side of it. I, 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 how do you make those things at billion at a clip? I have no idea. Let me know. <laughs> so some people do use that. So mechanical kind of, you know, blade devices and, and other kind of methods that are mechanically driven. But uh, some other manufacturers uh, that, that uh, we've looked at uh, were producing by using literally shockwave physics to make the potato peel ex load by virtue of pushing through a shock wave of, of very hot vapor that just just let the, the, the potato peel completely explode, <laughs> right? So when you look at time series, right, and you see those shock wave physics happening, you know, day in, day out, and these pops happening day in, day out on the manufacturing shop floor, uh, you can imagine that, you know, the physics behind it is important to understand and, you know, how much of the peel is left versus not afterwards, right? How do you trace that back to how the shockwave went through this tube and, you know, peeled the potato for you? It's a very interesting kind of thing to look at. So that's, you know, from a quality perspective, increasing the amount of potatoes that you can pull through and the, you know, the maintenance of all these machines become very, very important. And sometimes we, we get uh, interesting projects like this where time series is not what we expected to see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't think any of our listeners would necessarily assume shockwave physics and French fries would ever be used in the same sentence. But now, uh, dear listeners, you have heard exactly that. So, okay, so that's, <laughs> that's a curious way to peel potatoes. Uh, uh, Great to know that cutting edge science is making its way into uh, one of my favorite foods. Is this related to the reduction of variance as a use case, or is this still related to quality? I want to know kind of where we are. So uh, qual quality really is the, the main driver there. Uh, it's really the amount of the length and processed potato that comes out of the tube, you know, how easy it is after that to, to treat it for the next steps in, in a, you know, continuous chain events. As you know, like, you know, franchises, and, you know, hundreds and thousands and millions of bags of these things coming out every year. So the, the, the fast pace is actually mind-boggling. <laughs> but yeah, it's all about in increasing the quality of what comes out of that process so that the rest of the process can go on as usual huh. uh, and, and avoid any you know unplanned downtime uh, downstream because you know some of the potato peels didn't come off or you know in the right way so tell me if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly basically what the way I'd assume the AI is being used in such an application and this is quite a unique one uh, I don't think we may never again no matter if I have 5,000 other podcast guests on talk about peeling potatoes at scale with ML. But the way I imagine this this might be going down, as you had said, you're kind of analyzing the effect of that shockwave and then how did that turn into an effect on the potatoes? My guess is, and please correct me, um, is that we're, we're measuring through telemetry in some way, shape, or form, heat, vibration, what, however we measure a shockwave. And then we're also potentially measuring the mass or bulk of potatoes and whatever this chamber is. So we're, we're looking at both of those factors 
we're looking at the feedback from the telemetry, and then we're potentially using computer vision or some other method of detecting the relative quality in terms of you know how, mu- how much skin is left here or whatever barometer. I imagine it's like if, if half the skins are still on, we pretty much failed the job. If 95% of them are off the potato, we're probably in a great spot to start slicing these things up and turning them into fries. So there's some measure that I imagine computer vision uh, would be assessing out the back end. So my guess is we're, we're finding that proper correlation between sensor data based on the potato load that would be the right calibration to blast it to get the right quality output, which we're assessing with ML uh, and computer vision. This is completely my imagination. Please let me know how telemetry and AI fit into this, because you guys are working on something quite uh, unique here. Well, yeah, so all of those uh, details that you mentioned are relatively in the right ballpark. So in the end, you know, when you look at uh, telemetry, you know, the pressure, the amount of of steam, you know, the the speed at which you open the valve and close the valve and and how you, you know, move things over in the the mass, the total mass of these things is are really the, the key time series parameters really that drive the process. On the other end of the spectrum, when you look, as you mentioned, you know, uh, machine vision for assessing right the quality later of what you produce, that that's a different type of, of process where you're just simply assessing. You're not controlling the quality at that point. You're assessing the quality. So there's a little bit of a difference there into you know how you impact the real process, which is up, up typically upstream. Once you get to the imagery side, typically it's too late, right? So we can apply uh, machine vision in some cases, but not in this particular okay, one, okay. Uh, just because it's it's a, you know we want to uh, essentially prevent these things from happening. So we do assess, but then it's too late. So really, it's driving the 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 shockwave physics, <laughs> for lack of a better word, in the optimal way based on the amount of potatoes and how long they've been there and all sorts of other parameters that get into the, the specific process that I can't really get into here. But yeah, yeah. You know, there are different cases there. Maybe as a, a different type of a specific example in a different industry to show you how different these kinds of projects can be. In discrete manufacturing, we have a very interesting case where we've evaluated quality of you know um, lithium batteries for electric cars and electric buses. So you're thinking of like a big table size of of a battery here, like 12 inch thick, and you know these massive things. And so lots of lithium in there. And, you know, if you look at 10 different stages, when we say discrete, it's just because you have different stages of manufacturing where you take a certain amount of wafers and then you put them in boxes and then you add, you know, electronics on it. But you may use the first, it's not necessarily a continuous process where you take in line and sequence what happens down the line. You may put aside a batch for whatever reason, pass another batch in the front and, Anyway, uh, put a different electronic set. Uh, so th- there's different things that happen in discrete manufacturing, which are quite uh, <laughs> particular to that world. And in electric car for lithium batteries, the, the, the real throughput and looking at the performance, and you talked about a little bit of the variance in quality of those you know, manufactured products becomes really key. And in, in, in this specific customer case, you know, you're looking at more than 10,000 uh, real-time telemetry sensors of different types that are being you know, acquired throughout the, those 10 discrete stages of, of manufacturing, some more, some less. But in the end, when you string that all together, 
that's how you can now predict the end quality of product. And it's, it's all an incremental probability, right? So as you go from stage one to stage two to stage three to stage four, you're increasing the, the probability of manufacturing a good or a bad battery. And sometimes you can correct for it, but sometimes you can't. So what we've done there is essentially after the fourth, uh, roughly fourth uh, stage in manufacturing, they pull out the components that are almost guaranteeing a quality failure at the end of the food chain. So avoiding all this work and all this material that needs to be manually redone and reworked at the end and reducing the productivity of that line, right, effectively. So the quality here is related Yes, to the, the product itself, but also limiting the, the variance of those batteries so you don't have problems on the after sales market, right? So if you, if you produce a battery that's three times more performant, in a way you're celebrating, but in another way you're actually <laughs> screaming because that means one of the client will either come to, back to you three years earlier or three years later. And in both cases, those can be problematic, right? Because then they're going to ask questions as to why this particular electric car or set of electric cars came back earlier, the battery failed early, uh, and that, that brings all sorts of issues. So, so they, they used ML in this case to reduce the variance and increase the quality, but increase the quality with the optic of speeding up the production right? So that you don't uh, waste time with manual rework and all that jazz at the end of the food chain, just because you, you're you kind of troubleshooting and trying to understand what went wrong and how to fix it. And that, that takes a lot of time. And in the manufacturing you know, environment, you don't have that time. So you don't want to do firefighting for, for quality at the end. Certainly not. Um, and, and I can imagine, you know, as you just kind of brought up, in this case, you're optimizing for uh, that throughput and efficiency. It would seem as though the way that you structure the ML system, in other words, what data you take in, you know, what sources you pull from, et cetera, really would be in large part determined by what you're actually optimizing for. If you were optimizing for something totally different, maybe other features would be more important for you to track. And, and you'd, you'd be training algorithms on different facets of time series and other parts of the workflow or something along those lines. What's that process look like to actually think through guys, what are we optimizing for? And guys, what are the data sources that are going to be most likely to help inform and automate some decision making around that? Like, what does that collaborative process look like? Because I think people underestimate how important that strategy step is before you start touching the code. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No way before you start touching the code. And that's why we always start with uh, an exploration and alignment phase, as we call it with the customer before we touch anything and we go through our AI project Canva where we answer all those questions, right? What is the business challenge that you're having? What are the business challenges that you're having today on your shop floor, right? List the top three that come to mind, right? Where you've done firefighting and it's hurting you or you've had a bunch of unplanned downtime here and there, like list those out. Let's see if you have data to align to fix those things with data or not and if you're really if the value is so high it may still be worth it instrumenting adding some sensors or other things to to actually go through an ml project and do ml ops in, in the back end later but in the end it's it always starts for us as a an evaluation uh, period an alignment period as we call it where we define very properly 
the, the, the business case and the, the value, the time that it will take to implement, the gaps in infrastructure that you may have. Uh, if you need new edge device that are not there anymore uh, on your shop floor for whatever reason, we can replace them with other things. If you have ways to push things to a private cloud or not, then we, you know, we instrument things that, that the right way. Yeah, so so there, it always starts though, as as you pointed out, then uh, with a business value, a business assessment. Like, what is the objective? And then we're going to back the data and the technology and the AI and ML you know, uh, project into it if, if, if it's the right fit, right? We don't just apply AI and ML at, uh, at every problem either, right? We're an, an engineering and manufacturing firm, and, and we will apply the practical solution to the problem. And I mean, more often now we get called in to uh, deliver AI and machine learning and operations, which has a huge amount of value. Uh, but it, you know, it's not always the the right uh, solution to start with, and we we can you know m modify the plan and get there, but uh, in different stages. Yeah, and, and I think again, like you said, way before touching the code, it's really really important that people double yeah. down on just how important that is, uh, and and how critical Absolutely. that strategy element is. The last point we'll touch on here for this episode is around return on investment. You know, improving quality, reducing variance. Um, these are all important things, and I can imagine they could be quantified, but you certainly have more experience here than I. When it comes to thinking about ROI, what's the right way for leaders to look at AI projects and kind of hold their feet to the fire in a way where uh, they're measuring return the right way? Because it's it's easy mm -hmm. for leadership to set some unrealistic expectation. Okay, I want AI to you know yeah. reduce time <laughs> by half. It, you know it's it's easy to it's easy to make flim flam sort of accusations at AI and try to hold it accountable to them, but there's probably a, a smart way to think about ROI that's also realistic. What do you advocate for there? Well, so typically we want to establish the, the baseline metrics of where where they're starting from today, right? We're talking about earlier the objective, business objective. So if we were to meet that business objective, right, it would be to move the needle from, let's say, uh, 2% of quality assurance failures to 1.6% quality assurance failure. And if we were to reduce by that 0.4%, right, how much is that worth to you? And how much, you know, can we quantify it somehow? And if, if we can quantify it, well, let's make sure we track today, and most people track their quality percent quality failures and quality assurance uh, percentage. And so it's a very easy metric that's typically just there already to understand and know that once you put the ML thing on, then uh, it starts you know moving the dial. And if it's not moving the dial, then you need to react very proactively and go and, and figure out why, what went wrong in, in that ML ops uh, type of uh, deployment. So that's one portion of the, the equation is to make sure you have the right metrics and that you can track your starting point. And that it, and I'm going to stretch the fact, you know, you have to measure before, you know, what you yes. want to end up, where you want to end up, right? And, and make sure you can track it first. If you can't track it first, then simply don't, don't start that project. You're never going to know if you're moving the, the dial in the right direction. The other aspect to this is, you know, once you, you are measuring the right thing, you have to understand that there's a bit of infrastructure that might be needed. And, and that infrastructure is kind of your capital investment, right? And when, when you 
when you start in manufacturing, first you need a, a building of some sort to, you know, to host all the machines and, and the people and, and the process in, inside. So that capital investment is there right now. So you, you're no longer thinking about it, right? You're paying for it on a whatever annualized basis, whatever it is. Now, an infrastructure for running ML may or may not be in place right now, right? But that will not serve just one use case. So this is where we have to sit and kind of uh, with the, the executives and say, look, you have to dream big, right? In the hope that everything works out, here's the kind of the overall scope of what we could do, right? And then dial it down to say, okay, we're gonna start with this smaller project to get everything in place, but th that one project may or may not cover the entire cost of the infrastructure. But let's not get held up on measuring ROI on that infrastructure for one project, right? Let's see if you do two or three of those projects, right? How many of those do you need? And that's why if we start with the business use cases, you, you understand that you have a backlog of two or three or four of these different projects that each have a rough estimate of the value that it will bring to your company with these metrics being tracked. And then you go forward, right? Because you know you're gonna be able to pay back. And maybe the first project pays it back in five years, Maybe with two projects, you paid back in two years. And with three projects, you paid back in six months. Okay, well, now we're talking, right? And that's the right way of looking at AI projects. It's not just one. And, and you know, don't just do a POC and stop in, in your tracks because the infrastructure costs you, you know, five times the price of that one POC. Well, yeah, because <laughs> that's what's needed to get going and then get all the rewards. So anyway. That's uh... Su super important. I'll try to double down on two points as we wrap up here. Things that we've heard come up on the show and things that we we also um, have unearthed from our own research. One of them is, you know, commonly talked about is kind of the portfolio approach for AI projects. If we're taking AI seriously, it's not, these are R&D projects at the end of the day. And it's not to say they're guaranteed to fail, but it's also to say it's not some plug it in and here's your result solution. This this stuff is hard for a reason and, and it, it provides a big advantage, but it's a... Uh, it's challenging. So have a portfolio approach, be willing to, to, you know, take a swing at a few different use cases and also consider the maturity that you're building along the way. As you brought up, you know, what we talk about, we have an article called how to build an enterprise AI roadmap on Emerge. And the goal here is let's find projects that can unlock some kind of a measurable, tangible, accountable short-term ROI, but are also building a floor of capability that's going to take us closer to our digital transformation vision. Because like you said, that infra and everything that we're building to make that one POC work, that's now maturity. It shouldn't be a spun off in a dark corner thing. It should be a leveling up of capability, and that should be seen as part of the win. So it sounds like yeah. you're advocating for something similar. Hey, let's think about that floor of unlocking our data as a new capability. And let's have a number of tests on top of that because this is part of how we grow. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. You're hitting the right yeah, the right points there. Um, and I mean, one additional point there is to get to, to that value and, and the platform that's needed typically to get going, uh, typically will involve a lot of, of partners. And, and, and for us, whether it's on the, you know, Siemens digital industry software or uh, BDO dig digital, we always involve uh, uh, big partners to, to get to that point faster, right? Some, some vendors have been in the in manufacturing world delivering amazing solutions for years. 
And so we need to team up often to fast track that deployment of the infrastructure with with bigger firms. And we have a, a great track record of playing in a teamwork and augmenting, you know, from an engineering uh, standpoint and manufacturing knowledge and experience from from our standpoint, you know, the value that these other big giants bring to the manufacturing world. So that that's another kind of element of that piece. Big time. Yeah. Well, AI uh, said recently on a podcast that has not yet aired yet, AI is a team sport, uh, one of our guests had mentioned. And certainly that is the case between the vendors and the providers, between the in- in-house experts at the companies that you're working with. And that's yep. an important expectation to set as kind of an endpoint here when it comes to ROI. Remy, I know that that's all we have for time for this interview, but thank you so much for being able to join us and hopping on the show. Thank you, Dan. So that's all for this episode of the AI and Business Podcast. Thank you to you for listening all the way through to the end of this episode. Big thank you to Remy for joining us. Remy will be hopping in again for a second episode in about a month or a month and a half here in the new year, uh, where we'll be focusing on improving productivity. So this is not the last that you've heard from Remy, and quality is not the only goal that we'll be talking about when it comes to artificial intelligence. So hopefully we'll have you with us here in January as we switch our focus over to productivity and have Remy back on the program. If you are just getting started with artificial intelligence in heavy industry or really any sector, uh, be sure to check out our free PDF brief called Beginning with AI, Three Critical Insights for Non-Technical Leaders. If you don't write the code, Remy's obviously a very technical person. If you're someone who doesn't write the code, but you still want to understand the fundamentals of AI deployment in different industries, avoid the common pitfalls, and have a better grasp of some of the fundamentals that you'll need to know as you go into enterprise AI projects, then go to emerj.com slash B-E-G-1. That's B-E-G like beginner and then the number one, emerj.com slash B-E-G-1. And be sure to download that PDF brief called Beginning with AI, Three Critical Insights for Non-Technical Leaders. Other than that, that's all for this episode. Thanks again for being with us. I look forward to catching you in the next one here on the AI and Business Podcast.